Well, good morning, friends. It is great to be with you all this morning. Uh, I bring my greetings from, what, 15, 16, 17 hours away from Denver in, in South Africa. I don't know what time it is there right now. I think everyone's sleeping. Uh, but it's really great to be with you. As um, Daniel said, I've been at several churches around the U.S. over the last few weeks. And one of the tricky things about preaching in lots of different churches is that in the U.S., the churches all have different worship styles and dress codes, even within the same denomination. So what I did was I got on the Deer Creek live stream a couple of weeks ago before I was coming here to see what things were like. So this is my best uh, Daniel Nealon um, impression. Uh, hopefully it fits. Friends, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 14 verses of Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up, and so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's ask for God's help as we study this together this morning. Father, your word is truth, and, and we need this truth this morning. We need to be shaped and formed by it. And we have the incredible, the incredible gift, the incredible mercy that you have upon us in that when we open up the Bible, we get the words of the creator God of the universe, the God who flung the stars into space. And so we rejoice in this privilege and we ask that this morning by your spirit you would take these words and you would put them deep into our hearts. That we would not just have intellectual comprehension, 
but we would be changed as we see your Son and are delighted by what we see. Help us now, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, when you open up the book of Exodus and you, you, you get to chapter 3, what you find is you find Moses, and he's, he's out in the desert, and he's shepherding his father-in-law's flocks. And it's actually many years into the future from the first two chapters. In the first two chapters, what happened was he, he killed an Egyptian foreman, and as a result, got alienated from Pharaoh and the household that he grew up in. He was also alienated from his own people, the Hebrews, because they looked at him and said, what have you got some sort of savior complex? We don't need your help. And so he runs away into the desert, settles, marries down amongst the Midianites, and takes up a new profession. And it's here in the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula that we encounter one of the most famous stories in the Bible, and that is Moses and the burning bush. If you kind of grew up in evangelical Sunday schools, you probably heard the story ad nauseum. You probably had to color in little pictures of burning bushes. You had to stick them up on the felt board because you didn't have a proper Sunday school experience if you didn't have a felt board in your Sunday school. Um, but it's this particular story that we discover one of the most profound truths about God, a truth that I actually think will radically change us if we take it on board. And I know we use that phrase in a kind of cliched way in church, radical, but I really think we'll radically change us if we take it on board. And here we discover that the God of the Bible, our God, is truly, truly self-sufficient in himself in absolutely every respect. And, and I want us to explore that together this morning. So first of all, I want to show you what I mean when I say that God is truly self-sufficient and then I've got two simple points for you. Number one, divine self-sufficiency changes how you relate to yourself. And then number two, divine self-sufficiency changes how you relate to God. Uh, so what is divine self-sufficiency in those two points? Notice I've actually got three points, but I'm pretending like I've got two. <laughs> what does divine self-sufficiency mean? There's a lot going on in this passage. But based on how the previous two chapters ended, you are expecting, with God's people suffering, God's people enslaved, you're expecting God to do something now, to intervene, to start to save his people. And this is how he starts, by commissioning Moses to come and to lead his people into freedom. But the way in which he reveals himself to Moses is actually quite strange. So look down in your Bibles, look at verse 1. Uh, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses, he saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. And so he thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. So he, he actually ends up pretty far away from his usual grazing spots. He ends up at a place called Horeb, which we actually know is another name for Mount Sinai. And then he sees this really peculiar sight. It's a bush that's burning, but it's not really burning. The, the bush is not actually getting consumed by the fire. And so being weirded out by this and being intrigued, he thinks, well, let me go over and take a look. So verse 4, the Lord sees this. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called from him within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
Now, now I can imagine Moses being pretty spooked at this point. He gets over to a bush that is burning, but is not burning. And then a voice comes out of the bush. And so he's like hurriedly trying to take his sandals off to figure out who is speaking to me, what kind of demon or deity or angel or something is talking to me. He wants to know who this is. So verse 6, God tells him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So notice that when he figures out who is speaking to him, he doesn't kind of relax and go, oh, it's just you, God. I was, you had me going there for a second. He, he hides his face out of fear, out of a holy reverence for God. And then it's at this point that we get the commissioning. Verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. And so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, all the other ites. And, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, that would be enough for me, right? And I'll go from God. Uh, but not for Moses, because he has a back and forth with God here as to whether or not he is the right person for this job. Uh, verse 11, Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, God comes back and he says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Still not enough for Moses. So Moses says to God, suppose, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now think about this for a second. It's not that the people, the Hebrews back in Egypt, don't know who God is. Because a few verses earlier, God revealed himself as the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses knew who he was having grown up in Pharaoh's court. So surely the Hebrews back in Egypt know who God is. So Moses is asking for more here than a, than a kind of basic identity. He's asking God to disclose something of himself that is going to move the people to listen to him when he finally rocks up. Because you remember in the ancient world, in ancient literature in general, names are very deeply tied in with one's character, with one's actions. And so when God gives us his full name, He's, he's telling us who he truly is. That's what Moses wants to know. And so here's how God responds to the request, verse 14. God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, this is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. God discloses his name, and, and his name is I am who I am. And it's a pretty strange name, right? Like, if there are expecting parents over here and you're on Google looking for the top 100 names of the last five years, <laughs> this name is not in that list. It's not entirely clear what he's trying to communicate through the name either. There, there are pages and pages of debate in kind of academic theological circles about what the name means. And I'm sure while there's, there's a lot of technical nuance there, what what most theologians agree on is that God is basically saying that he is the essence and source of ultimate reality. To put it another way, God 
just is. He's not created. He didn't appear out of nowhere at some point. He just is, and he always has been. He is the very bedrock of existence. He is totally and utterly complete in and of himself. He's completely self-sufficient. The theologians have a technical term for this. They, they call this the doctrine of the aseity of God. So I, like me, you probably had to look that word up. So Merriam-Webster defines aseity as the quality or state of being self-derived or self-originated, specifically the absolute self-sufficiency, independence, and autonomy of God. This is a, this is a classical Protestant doctrine that, that, that Christian churches are founded upon. In, in our own Presbyterian Statement of Faith, the Westminster Confession, which was written in the 1600s, uh, chapter 2 says this, God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all sufficient in and to himself, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but rather manifesting his own glory in, by, to, and on them. He alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. You, you can hear the echoes of the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 there. God, God is not, he's not contingent on anyone or anything. He just is. In, in the city center of Cape Town where I pastor, been there for 10 years, and um, it's a pretty secular part of the country. The African continent in general is fairly religious and conservative, but down there in the city bowl of Cape Town, people don't like Jesus very much. They wonder whether or not there's still a place for organized religion. They're pretty skeptical of the claims of faith and whether or not belief in a God is even rational. And so when we were going to plant it 10 years ago, I thought, well, I better brush up on my basic Christian apologetics, like giving a defense of the faith. And so I was reading. I was reading all these debates between Christians and atheists and agnostics. And, and now because of YouTube, you can watch like a gazillion debates between atheists and Christians, some of it good, some of it not so good. But if you go and you kind of get into this apologetic subculture and you watch all this stuff all the time, you might come across this argument where the Christian will ask the atheist, Hey, atheist, what do you do with the problem of infinite regress? And you're like, what on earth is infinite regress? Well, well the Christian will, will say, you say, well, where, do, where does the universe come from? And the atheist will say something like, well, it comes from the Big Bang. And then the Christian will say, well, where did the Big Bang come from? And the atheist will say something like, well, it comes from the singularity. And then the Christian will say, well, so where does the singularity come from? And so you get this, this problem of infinite regress, at which point the Christian says, you see, there has to be a first cause. And that first cause must be God. Now, the atheist stops and he thinks about this and he goes, hang on, hang on a second here. Well, who created God then? And he thinks, he thinks this is kind of like a gotcha moment, like I've trapped you in your own argument here. But the problem is that he's making a category mistake. See, we ask questions like, where did the universe come from? Because from what we can see around us, everything in this universe is contingent on something else in order to exist. Things don't just appear out of nothing. It would be weird and creepy if things appeared out of nothing. But God is not like the universe. He is not contingent on anything. He just is, and he always has been. Christians don't believe in a contingent God. They believe in the great I am. You, you'll see this even symbolized in the burning bush itself. 
So many people have tried to figure out, well, what is the burning bush supposed to symbolize? Is it the holiness of God? Is it his presence? And it, it might be some of all of that stuff, but I, but I think it's something more. Um, a colleague of mine, my, my assistant pastor, when I, when I first studied this passage a couple of years ago, he pointed this out to me, and then I actually, I quoted him in a sermon to make him feel good about himself. But uh, uh, he said to me, Moses encounters a fire nourished by its own life a truly living flame that needs nothing outside of itself to burn. And then he actually showed me a real scholar, Alec Mottier, who says, the essence of this revelation is that Yahweh is the living God, a self-maintaining, self-sufficient reality that does not need to draw vitality from outside. So the fire is self-sustaining, just like the God who just is. The fire doesn't need any fuel. Similarly, God is not contingent on anything. God is perfectly and completely self-sufficient within himself. And this is the great claim of the Bible. This is the great claim of Christianity. This is the God that we worship. Now that's kind of all the technical stuff up front, but this is huge. And it makes an enormous difference to our lives. It changes everything. First of all, it changes how we conceive of ourselves. It changes how you relate to yourself. So there's actually a little play on words that takes place here. You can even see it in your English translation of the original Hebrew. Uh, In verse 4, God calls Moses from the bush, and Moses replies, I am here. Then verse 6, God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then in verse 10, God says, I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh. Then in verse 11, Moses says, who am I? So he flips it around at that point. And it all comes to this great crescendo where God, in verse 14, says, I am who I am. So so kind of if you weren't tracking with that, it goes, I am here, I am God, I am sending you, who am I? I am who I am. There's a lot of I am in there. It's almost um, like the immortal lyrics that come to us from the musical genius that is Nacho Libre. You remember that song? (laughs) I am, I am, I am, I am, I think I am, I thank I am, I'm glad I am, I'm proud I am, a religious man. Uh, very underrated religious movie there. (laughs) Now the point is that there's a very clear play on this phrase, I am. But there's one place where it inverts. Where Moses, in response to God's call, says, well he asks, who am I? And it's like he misses the point of everything that's going on here. Moses faces God. He faces God in this burning bush, he faces the reality of his people enslaved and suffering in Egypt. And his response is, who am I to do anything about this? And God is standing there saying, Moses, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. You see, the self-sufficiency of God tells us that we are not the center of this universe. It tells us that who is God is an infinitely more important question than who am I. It takes our kind of myopic view off of ourselves and places it where it ought to be upon God. And when you think about our culture right now, and particularly Western culture, the part of Cape Town that I live in is very dominated by Western culture as well, but in in Western culture, can there be a more critical and important doctrine than the aseity of God right now? His self-sufficiency. Because we live in the peak of what must be the peak of what the late sociologist Robert Bella called expressive individualism. So according to Robert Bella, expressive individualism is the belief, and I quote, that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition 
that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. So that is the way that you find meaning in life, the way that you find purpose and identity and a sense of belonging, is what you've got to do is you've got to look inside. Inside there are feelings, inside there are intuitions that need to be discovered and then kind of expressed for you to reach your full potential and attain happiness. You think about some of the key slogans in our age that you might come across in the media today. You be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself, be authentic to who you are. One of the most helpful uh, Christian thinkers I've come across in recent years is an Australian church leader and author by the name of Mark Sayers. And in his book, Disappearing Church, he lists seven summary statements of this expressive individualism. And I, I want to read them to you because they're key to understanding the, 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 the culture that we live in right now. So he says, these are the seven summary statements of expressive individualism. Number one, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Number three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular the internet, will motor this progression towards utopia. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class inequality and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. Number five, humans are inherently good. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. When I got into the US almost two and a half weeks ago now, I arrived in Myrtle Beach in South Carolina. I got to swim in the sea there because it's a lot warmer than the Cape Town Sea. But this world of expressive individualism is the, the water we swim in. It's the sea we swim in. It's all around us. You don't need the community or the institution or religion to tell you who you are. You just look inside and you, you discover who you really are. That is the water that you and I swim in. That is the reason that selfies are a thing. It's the reason why the plot of every single recent Disney movie is exactly the same. And I know this through hard research because my kids are that age. But it also might be the reason why several medical schools, including prestigious schools like Harvard Medical School, have released large amounts of data about a growing loneliness pandemic in our world amongst younger people. And this was before the coronavirus came along and um, kicked that into gear even more. It might also be the reason why mental health issues and suicide are growing rapidly amongst millennials and Gen Z. It might be the reason why we currently have some of the lowest percentages of long-term committed romantic relationships and marriages and recorded history amongst that same age demographic. There, there's a lot of data out there that suggests that expressive individualism with its, its focus on the subjective feelings and the desires of your inner life over and against the role of your community or your tradition or your religion is, is actually having a deeply, deeply destructive effect upon our society. Looking inside of ourselves is not making us any happier. 
If anything, it's making us more stressed, more anxious, more lonely and isolated than previous generations. You see, because we, we, we live in a culture like Moses here, repeatedly asking the question, who am I? And the antidote to that is to stop asking the question, who am I? And to start asking the question of God, who are you? See, friends, if the God of the Bible is the only truly all-sufficient one, if he is life itself, if his existence itself, then we, we can never, never possibly hope to find hope or joy or meaning or life or purpose or identity in this world without first looking to him. You cannot, cannot answer the question, who am I, without first gazing upon the great I am. The way, the way to joy, that's what you want. The way, the way to joy and contentment is not, not to run around constantly discovering and expressing the subjective feelings and intuitions of your own heart. The way to lasting joy and lasting contentment, even in this life, is to conform your own heart, not to the subjective feelings, but to the objective reality of the great I am. And so divine self-sufficiency changes how we relate to ourselves. But then secondly, it also changes how we relate to God. Moses wants to know God's identity because he wants to convince the elders of the Israelites to trust the divine message that he's going to bring to them. Uh, I think he's hoping that God is going to give him a name that symbolizes his commitment to the people. Because in the Old Testament, God's got lots of different names. And they all sort of draw out different characteristics. And Moses is like, well, God, give me one of those names that's really going to move the people in the right direction here, like uh, Jehovah-Ra, God is my shepherd, so that the people will know that God will shepherd them out of their troubles. Or Jehovah-Shammah, God who is there, so that the people will know God's presence as they're going through their suffering. Or Jehovah-Jireh, God the provider, so that the people will know that God will provide for their emancipation out of slavery. God could have given Moses any one of those names. But instead of focusing on one particular characteristic, God gives him a name that encapsulates his very essence, that he is completely self-sufficient in himself. And if you think about it, that is the most comforting and reassuring name he could possibly give. And here's why. If God is completely self-sufficient within himself, then he doesn't need you. He doesn't need your love. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your service. He doesn't need your obedience. Don't tell the elders and the deacons, but he doesn't need your tithe. <laughs> Nothing you can do can add to him. Even in his rescuing of his people, he doesn't gain anything that in some way kind of fulfills him. You think, of a, you think of a wealthy philanthropist who gives large amounts of money to uplifting uh, the poor or, or the, the downcast, changing the lives of the less fortunate. That philanthropist, he still gets something from that giving. He either gets a sense of fulfillment from seeing broken lives being put back together. Maybe he even assuages some sort of perceived guilt he might have for having so much while other people don't have a lot. Either way, he gets something out of his giving. God does not. God does not get fulfilled by helping hopeless sinners like you and me. He cannot get fulfilled because he is by nature completely fulfilled in himself already. And that means this one thing above all else, 
It means that our relating to God then is purely, purely on the basis of his gracious condescension to us. There is no, I give you something, God, and then you give me something back. There is only grace from God, undeserved, unmerited grace. God does not owe us anything. He does not need anything from us. And yet, he condescends to love us, to rescue us from our sin, to give us relationship with him. You are only sitting here this morning because of his gracious condescension to you. And friends, that is why his love is so much more powerful. It is so much more selfless than any form of human love that you will ever, ever experience. I think we we like to talk about unconditional love as being the kind of highest form of human love. But I wonder if in a broken, sinful world, unconditional love truly exists. All human love has limits. Even the most intense, enduring love has limits. And that is because we are people who have needs. And so when we are not getting the love we feel we should be getting, it's hard to constantly just keep loving unconditionally back. But the love, well, the love that comes from God the God who does not need our love is so much more pure, more powerful, more selfless than any form of human love we will ever experience. It's not, it's not conditioned. It's not conditioned on your ability to love him back because, well, he's completely self-satisfied within himself. There's no hidden motives there, right? There's, there, there's no manipulation in his love. There's no secret agenda in his love. It is just pure, undefiled love that we receive by God's grace. And there is no place that this is more evident than at the cross of Christ, this grace. See, the God who does not need us comes down to us. Instead of commissioning somebody else like Moses to effect our salvation and our rescue, he himself enters into our world in the person of Jesus Christ, taking on frail human flesh. there's There's no deep unfulfilled desire inside of Jesus to be some sort of sacrificial hero. And yet he willingly, selflessly lays down his life for us. And when you see that, when you truly see that, when the eyes of your heart see that, you see the beauty and you see the glory of that, it is at that point, and it is only at that point that it is then finally appropriate for you in enormous humility to ask the question out of sheer wonder, who am I? Who am I that you would love me like this, O God? In some ways, that's a question this side of heaven we can't really know the answer to. But it should produce in us a wonder and a love for God, a a commitment to God like no other. Because we have received so much grace. The 17th century hymn writer Samuel Crossman wrote, My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Divine self-sufficiency means that God relates to you purely on the basis of his gracious and perfect love. You don't deserve that love. You don't earn that love. You can't manipulate him into giving, manipulate him into giving you that love. But by his grace, he gives it to you. If he were not completely self-sufficient in himself we would actually have all sorts of reasons to doubt his love and to suspect his motives. We'd sing these songs about the love of God, but we'd be wondering if God knew how 
bad my marriage was, would he still love me? If he knew how poor my reading of scripture and prayer was, would he, would he still be committed to me? If he knew how much I'm failing at just living out basic Christianity, would he still save me? We'd have all those big question marks every time we sing, I love you, Jesus, there'd be a big question mark at the back there. But because the great I am came into this world to, as, as Tim Keller famously used to say, live the life we cannot live and die the death we deserve to die, because of that, we can have absolute, absolute confidence that we are the recipients of the purest and most gracious love possible. It takes all those question marks away. That is how God, in his all-sufficient wisdom, has chosen to relate to you and me this morning. And so, friends, does that comfort your heart this morning? Does that build a, a, a wall of safety around you in the way you live your life to give you a confidence, a platform to go out and exist in this complicated, difficult place? And maybe you sit here this morning and you've never known that love. And you're going, I'm, I'm still, God's a little distant from me. I'm not sure what to make of him. I would plead with you this morning, run to that love. Stop trying to build your own identity. Stop trying to look inside and find who am I. It's exhausting. It breaks you down. You'll never know. Have I found the right person yet, the right version of Stephen inside? Run to the great I am. Trust in him. Trust in that grace. Place your faith in him. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, our heavenly Savior, you, you have loved us so well. We are so unworthy of that love. You pour your grace upon us, and like Moses, we want to ask all sorts of questions. We want to get clarity instead of just resting and rejoicing in that grace. This morning, I pray you'd help us to do that. Whatever experience we're coming to from this week, whether we've got difficult relational complications in our life, whether we are struggling with our own holiness and growth in holiness, whether we are struggling with economic pressures on us, Whatever it is, maybe it's illness. May we rest in the all-sufficient God who in His grace has loved us so well. And I pray for any person who's sitting here this morning who doesn't know that love, who has not said, I, I, I'm going I'm to stop looking to build my own identity and I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ to save me from my sin. I pray that that person would come to faith this morning, that they would rest their hope in your Son. Help us in this, Father, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.